Welcome to the Crosswalk Church Podcast, Phoenix, Arizona. Do you ever think, well, that's really church stuff? You need to go see this movie. Because that's what this movie is about. It's about these kinds of themes. The themes that we talk about often are also being talked about in our popular culture. The main idea, however, of this movie is the power of an idea. And how a single idea, once planted in someone's mind, can change the entire course of their lives. And it's interesting because that's exactly what Jesus is trying to do in our story this morning. Change the course of a man's life based on a false idea he's thinking and then trying, Jesus trying to help him understand things from a new perspective, see things in a new light, plant a new idea in his mind. And what this idea has to do with is what we've been talking about, our vocation destination, which means... Where are we going to end up when we truly understand where God is calling us? Vocation means calling and destination, where I end up, right? So if I were to truly understand God's calling on my life, where would that take me? We, we've talked about how in reality, in some, t- in some cases, it doesn't take you anywhere but where you already are at, that really there are a lot of opportunities to... Um, to follow God's calling, doing just the little things that you're already doing in everyday life, but doing them for the glory of God. Last week, we talked about how life needs to be viewed not so much like we're on a carnival cruise ship, but like we're on a battleship. And especially if you think about life in the church, we are on a battleship, and the difference that that idea makes If you think of yourself as kind of just rolling through life on a carnival cruise ship, then life is about just resting, relaxing, meeting the basic needs, bellying up, as we said last week, to the big buffet bar. If you're on a battleship, that's a whole different idea. Every role, every position on a battleship is critically important. Everyone has an important role to play. This week... We're going to come back full circle sort of to the idea that you can find your vocation destination right where you're at if you have the right idea planted in your mind, kind of that inception idea from the movie. So let's, with that idea in mind, open up to Luke chapter 10 or pull out your crosswalk notes, and we're going to read chapter 10, verse 25 and following. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, he replied. How do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So to a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. 
But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. And then he put the man on his own donkey, took him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two silver coins and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. And Jesus told him, go and do likewise. The power of an idea. If ideas are powerful, and actually not only does the movie Inception teach this, the Bible also teaches it, then of course we have to be really aware of the ideas that we have about life that are going on in our minds that are framing the way we think about our lives and also framing the way that we think about our vocation destination, what our true calling in life is. And we also have to be aware that because of sin in the world, sin has messed with our thinking. Our ideas, our way of thinking, our way of reasoning things out has been affected just like our heart and our emotions have been affected by sin. Remember, if sin, the the basic definition of sin is to miss the mark, then sin impacting our thinking is going to mean that our thinking misses the mark at times. And you can go all the way back to the Garden of Eden and see how Satan worked that in in the very first temptation with Eve. How he already there with Eve was challenging her thinking. Who is this God guy to think that he should be the center of your universe, Eve? Who is he to tell you not to eat of this tree? Who is he to say, I can have knowledge of good and evil, but you can't? I want you to have that. Eve, why aren't you the center of your universe? Why isn't it all about you? Why is God saying it's all about him? Why should this universe revolve around God? And why should you listen to him? Look at that fruit, Eve. See how desirable it is, how good it looks. I'll bet it's going to taste even better. Do what you want. Let the universe revolve around you, Eve. It's all about you. And you know that thought, it's all about me. That's the basic level that drives all sin in our world. Because at the most basic level, sin is this self-centered, selfish idea that the world and the universe revolves around me. That in essence, God is not God, but I'm God. I should be able to think the thoughts I want to think, do the things I want to do, say the things I want to say, and no one should try, not God even, should try to control me. I control me. And that's what I want you to write out because here's the first thing and really the last thing that we're going to come back to in this message today. All of that is a lie. Satan's lie. Truly, it's not about me. 
And write that down. It's not about me. We're going to talk about that. Because when we start to think that it is about me and that the universe revolves around me, we're believing a myth. We're believing a lie. And that thought is powerful and can affect the course of our entire lives, just like the movie Inception teaches, just like the Bible teaches. And what we want to do today is we want to look at three versions of this myth that it's all about me. We want to look at three sort of takes or slants on that that affect how we choose our calling in life. And each one of them is Satan whispering in our ears and say, believe this, not that. Each one of them is a myth that he tells us that can change the course of our lives if we believe, if we take that myth in and follow it to its logical conclusion. And here's the first myth. The first myth that affects us is that when we choose our calling in life, when we try to figure out what it might be, it better be the right one in quotation marks. Because if it's not the right one, then people won't respect me. Many people pick their calling in life, pursue their course in life, simply because they're thinking about this, this, this simple myth that I have to be doing the right things or else I'm not going to get, my reputation going to be shot. I've even see, pe- seen people debate seriously a change in jobs and think to themselves, man, over here, I've got respect. People report to me. I, I have authority. I'm making money. But... But my heart wants to go over here. What do I do? Over here, there's tons of respect and accolades. Over here, people are going to go, what are you thinking? You're going from there to there? What? Sometimes we're forced in an economy like today's to go from there to there, aren't we? We lose our job. And, and, and a job that maybe many of us have, have held for a long time, a, a job where our coworkers were all giving us big pats on the back and, man, you, you really know how to do this and, and your customers appreciate you and everything's going well. You lose that job and now you're doing something and you're going, how did I get here? Who is going to ever respect me for doing this? And we let that myth rise up in our minds that, man, if I'm not doing the right thing, I'm not going to have the respect of the people around me. You know what? That's exactly the lie that was affecting this young lawyer, this expert in the law. You've got to understand him a little bit. You see, an expert in the law is someone who was a very religious person. And with the people on the street among the Jews had a lot of respect because he studied the Bible day and night. He knew the Old Testament inside and out. Ask him where a verse is or what a law is about or what a truth is from the Old Testament. He's right there with it. Boom, boom, boom. People are going, wow. Does this guy ever know God? Does this guy ever know his stuff? That is impressive. Kind of interesting what Jesus has to say. You want to do something interesting? Go home today. Get on the website, BibleGateway.com. 
and then just put in the phrase, expert in the law. You'll get eight or ten responses. And you'll start to read down and see what Jesus has to say about these experts in the law. One of the things he says in Luke chapter 11 right after this, and he he basically says to them, well, let me read it for you. Luke 11, 52. Woe to you experts in the law because you have taken away the key to knowledge. You hear that? A person that all the Jews respected and honored, Jesus was looking them in the eye and saying, the key to knowledge, (laughs) you've lost it. You've lost the forest for the trees. You've drilled down so deeply into all these laws and rules, even adding laws and rules of your own to what God wrote. You can't even back up far enough to see the real truth that's underlying all of this. You have taken away the key to knowledge. And then he says, you yourselves have not entered, meaning into God's kingdom, and you have hindered those who are entering. How sad it is when we believe this myth, that it's all about people respecting us. And man, it's all around us. The the last couple years in the NBA, you see players just getting into these big brawls. And, and then the interview afterward. And, and what is, I've heard it umpteen times. The other player was not respecting me. I had to do something to force him to respect me. See, that's how, that's how we are. We think that it's up to us to somehow force people to respect us. Well, let me ask you a question. What if your true God-given calling in life is a calling that doesn't get much respect from people? What if the thing that God has shaped you specifically for, your special place on the battleship, is something that people, even maybe your brothers and sisters in Christ, go, what? He's, he's doing What? And it's something that maybe doesn't get a lot of respect in our world, but it's what God is calling you to do. You know, if that's true of you, then you can smile because it was certainly true of God's own son, Jesus Christ. His heavenly father called him to do something in the world that Jesus himself helped to create that would lead him to being despised by people, not honored, not respected, but rejected. Take a look at what Isaiah says about Jesus Christ. And by the way, this is a prophecy. It's written in the past tense, but it was actually written many years before Christ was even born. But it's about Christ, a prophecy about him. And look at what it says. You want to recognize the Messiah? Here's what he's going to look like. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering, like one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. You see, 
what you might be missing if you believe the lie that it's all about earning the respect of others? Because had Jesus believed that, he would have never become your Savior. Jesus was willing to be rejected and despised. Why was that? Because he loved his Father. He wanted to fulfill his Father's will first. And he loved you and me. And that love led him to say, even if I'm dishonored, disrespected, rejected by people, I need to complete this mission. I need to do this task. I need to die on the cross. I need to rise from the grave because that means redemption for my people. It means forgiveness of sins. It means eternal life. It means salvation and transformation for people who trust. And so Jesus went ahead. And the Apostle Paul tells us what that means for you and me. It means that we don't have to worry about trying to earn the respect of people anymore. We don't have to try to get ourselves built up because we have all the respect we already need in the eyes of God. In God's eyes, you're perfect. You're holy. You're righteous. And so Paul writes to the Romans. He says, where then is boasting? It is excluded. You don't need to have to worry about building yourself up or boasting. That's out the door. Why? On what principle? On that of observing the law? You see, no, that's what this guy was trying to do, this, this lawyer. He was trying to observe the law. And Jesus saw that. And what does he say to him when he says, what do I do to inherit eternal life? Right? Jesus says, well, what does the law say? Actually, it's a little bit of an embarrassing question. Because when you see the answer, this learned man is forced to give a kindergarten answer. He's forced to go back to some of the most basic passages. He answers, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind. Love your neighbor as yourself. I think the man senses that this is a kindergarten question. Because after Jesus says this, you have answered correctly, Jesus replied, do this and you will live. Luke reports, but that man, that lawyer wanted to justify himself. And that word literally means he wanted to be thought well of in the eyes of people. And he wanted to be right in the sight of God too. He wanted to justify himself. He wanted to do something that would make him right in people's eyes and God's eyes. So he asks this further question, so who's my neighbor? See, he was infected with the lie, wasn't he? He had this belief that was affecting the course of his life that I have to do something to gain God's respect and to gain my neighbor's respect. And Paul says, is that how we do it on the strength of your neighbor as yourself? Paul says, no. It's not how you do it, not anymore. Now you do it through Christ. You do it on the basis of faith. And verse 28 says, for we maintain that a man is justified by faith in Jesus Christ apart from observing the law. 
So turn the page on your crosswalk notes, and here's the first truth that we have to get. If it's really true that Jesus has already won all of God's respect for us, he has caused us to be declared right in God's sight. And if it's true that God is the only one that truly matters, then it's not about my reputation. I can stop worrying about respect. I can stop worrying about doing the right thing, following the right calling in life. I can stop worrying that, man, did I take a step down here? What are people going to think? And I can say to myself, that's all garbage because it's not about my reputation. Jesus has won me the only reputation I really need. That's to be holy and right in God's sight. Now, there's another myth. And it's one that uh, I think a lot of us buy into. I know I've bought into it at times. And that's that if we do start to be kind the way Jesus is talking about here in this parable, you know how the parable goes on, right? This man is robbed, beaten, lying by the side of the road. Two people walk by. And surprisingly, they do nothing. Surprising? Why? Because the first one that walks by is a priest, a man of God. And this man of God, for whatever reason, we're not told the reason, he gets over on the other side of the road so he doesn't even have to look at this guy very long that he's passing by. A Levite comes along. Levite's also a religious guy. The priest focused more on spiritual things. He was like a mediator between God and people. The Levites were more kind of the practical guys. They would take care of the temple furnishings and make sure things were cleaned up and kept orderly and the offerings were put where they needed to be put. They took care of the practical affairs of the church, but they were still church people. And he passes by on the other side of the road. By the way, if you think this is talking about, oh, he's talking about the hired church people of today and how they can, they can uh, get into the wrong set of thoughts about helping their neighbor. He's really talking about you. He's talking about me too, but he's talking about you because you know who the priests of today are? The Bible tells us we're all priests, every one of us. We all stand between God and others. Every man, woman, and child is a priest of God when they believe in Jesus Christ. So this is talking about us and our tendency to buy into a myth that if I, if I start to help people, if I start to be regarded as a nice guy, what might happen? You see, scholars say one of the reasons that those two guys might have passed by is that they were afraid. Because sometimes there would be fake robberies. And guys would act injured by the side of the road to set an ambush. And that once you went over there to help out, guess what would happen? These other guys would bust out of the bushes and take care of you and rob you. 
Is that what we sometimes worry about in fear, that if we start to help, somehow we're going to get taken advantage of, that we're going to get walked over? That's the second myth I want you to write down. If I'm a nice guy, if I become a servant, if I try to be neighborly, eh, it's not going to work, not in today's world. People are going to just walk all over me. Wow, that's a big one. And I'll bet some of you are, are facing that in your job. You're a little worried to be too nice or too kind because you're thinking, man, that is just going to be taken advantage of. And so you back off of being a neighbor. And you know what really happened to the priest and the Levite? They missed their calling, didn't they? Because at that very point in time, On that day, on that place, their vocation destination was that person, that neighbor. And those two guys completely missed their calling. Fortunately, there was a third guy who came by, a Samaritan, someone that people among the Jews looked down their noses at, didn't like very much. They were discriminated against. There were racial overtones there. It was kind of thought, hmm, we don't want to mix with those Samaritans. But it is the Samaritan who stops and helps, bandages the guy up at his own personal expense, takes the guy to an innkeeper and says, take care of him. And by the way, if there are further expenses after I leave, take care of those too. I'll come back and I'll, I'll pay you and I'll take care of those as well. Would any of that have happened if that Samaritan had thought, I don't know if I want to help this guy. There might be robbers over there. If that man had acted in fear that, look, maybe the innkeeper is going to take advantage. I'm telling him, you know, take care of these guys' needs and whatever, whatever is owed at the end, I'll come back in a couple weeks and I'll take care of it. Would he have made that offer? if he was afraid about being taken advantage of, if it was all about what are my rights? For him, it was, what about this guy? Let's just get it taken care of. Pull out your crosswalk notes for a second. Look at Jesus. And I love his way of thinking on your and my behalf. This is Jesus talking. He says, the reason my father loves me is that I lay down my life. We underline that phrase, I lay down my life. Does Jesus say that if he's worried about being walked all over? If he's worried about his rights? If he's concerned about being taken care of? Does he say, I lay down my life? only to take it up again? Does he say, no one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord? I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. This command I received from my father, Jesus in effect says, I don't care. Sure, people are going to maybe take advantage of this. Sure, people are not going to be concerned about my rights, but I give myself. And so what if I get taken advantage of? Because maybe in being taken advantage of, people are saved. 
people are rescued. People are moved from sin and shame and death by virtue of the cross, by virtue of me really laying down my life. They're moved from all of that to hope and happiness and joy and life to the fullest, eternal life even. Because I don't care if people take advantage of me. I don't care if I'm beaten, mocked, spit upon. I don't care if nails are put through my hands, a thorny crown pressed down onto my skull. I I don't care. Because what I care about is fulfilling the will of my Father, and I love him. And what I care about is these poor people who are stuck in sin and death. That's what I care about. I lay my life down willingly, just like that Samaritan, right? I'm going to go there. I don't, I don't care if there might be robbers. I don't care if that innkeeper might take advantage of me. It's not about my rights. And why not? How could that Samaritan think that way? Well, first of all, because he was tapped into this amazing love of Jesus that says, I lay down my life for you but also because of what it says in Galatians 4, 4, and 5. But when the time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under law, to redeem those under law that we might receive the full rights of sons. You want to be concerned about your rights? Those are the rights that you want to be concerned about. That Jesus Christ, by his death and resurrection, has given you the right to say, I am a child of God, forgiven, loved, redeemed. I have eternal life. I have an inheritance from my my heavenly father. I have the full right to call myself a son of God, a daughter of God. And when you have that, when you walk around in everyday life, you know what freedom that gives you? Amazing freedom because you go, I have the rights I need. They're straight from God, the Father himself through Christ. I have those rights. If I don't get all these rights, who cares? Who cares? Because I have the rights that are the most important rights. It frees you from the constant pressure to stand up for your rights and how freeing that is. So, Here's the second point. It's not about my rights. And Jesus emphasizes that point in this parable by doing something kind of interesting. Did you notice? Go back up just one step. And I quote Jesus, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man? Do you notice how that's a twist? Because if you read the parable... What what the lawyer asks Jesus is, who is my neighbor? Meaning, who do I need to help? Then Jesus tells this story about the Good Samaritan. And at the end of telling the story, he answers, which of these three was a neighbor? He twists it. It's no longer about the neighbor who needs to be helped. Jesus makes it about the neighbor who's doing the help. And in effect, Jesus is saying, here's what's really important. Are you being a neighbor? Are you looking for people 
to help? Are you stopping being concerned about your rights, in other words? Are you stopping buying into the law, into the lie that says, I might get walked over, and just going, is there anybody here that needs my help? Is there something I can do for you? Who has God put in front of me that I can be a neighbor to? Okay, third and final myth. Third and final twist, really, or angle on the it's all about me myth, which is the overarching myth today. And that's this one. It's the myth that it's all or nothing. Let me explain that to you. Maybe you have this feeling, I know I do, and and frequently I have this feeling when I pull off the freeway and there's a a homeless guy there. Man, do I struggle with that sometimes. You know, do do I give him... A couple bucks, or do I keep my window rolled up? Do I stand, stand there with my eyes straight ahead pretending he's not there? Or do I look at him, which might bring him over by the car, and then, and then I fumble with my wallet, and do I have any cash? And all the while, in the back of my head, is the all-or-nothing myth playing. You know what the all-or-nothing myth is? If I help this guy... I'm setting a precedent, and the next time I get off the freeway, then I'm going to have to help that guy too. And how many guys can you help? There are a lot of problems in the world. There's big issues. And then pretty soon I'm telling myself, this is not just for me to help. It's a cause. We need a cause for this. We've got to have a big movement in our world. We're going to help all the homeless guys on the freeway. So now it's my responsibility to start a movement. I'll get up next Sunday in church, and I'll say, guys, Crosswalk is starting a movement. We're going to help all the homeless guys that are on the off-ramps on the freeway. It's all or nothing. And I'll bet some of you go through that too, right? Because there's tons. It, it, it's the proverbial. You've heard me use it before in other angles. But it's a proverbial fire hose. There's, it's all gushing at us. And how do I deal with all this need? Jesus is kind of interesting with this question. He says it's much simpler than you think. It's who has God placed in front of you right now? That's it. Take it one at a time. You don't don't have to start a cause. Everything's not about making a movement out of it. You can just go, who is right in front of me right now that God is kind of saying to me, by virtue of putting him in front of me, help him, help her, and take it one at a time. Take a look at um, Jesus. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. Now, I want you to underline this phrase, tired as he was from the journey. You know, when I start to do the all or nothing myth and play it in my head is when I'm tired, kind of feeling a little exhausted, like, oh, man, I just, I don't know if I can help one more person right now. I'm tired. Tired as he was from the journey, There was this Samaritan woman at the well. And he asked for a drink. And he says, 
kind of a little teaser. You know, if you'd ask me, I could give you living water. You never have to come to this well again. And this conversation begins. And what Jesus doesn't do is go, what? No, I can't do that right now. Sorry. We're not, we can't, I'm tired from the journey. Can we talk about this later? Jesus doesn't do that. Tired as he was from the journey, he gets into this conversation with this lady that ends up bringing the entire village out to see this Jesus. And then he has to deal with them too. But he's dealing with the people that his heavenly father puts right there in front of him. Tired as he was from the journey. And so that's actually what we see kind of throughout the scripture. You can see it in the Apostle Paul, too. He knew that as he went around, he was going to face people and problems and struggles. There were going to be times when he was exhausted, when he was going to have to work very hard, and when he was going to be tempted to buy into the lie that it's all or nothing. Look, I can't do this anymore, God. I've been whipped. I've been beaten. I've been shipwrecked. I've been bitten by snakes. I've been put in prison. Lord, come on. How much more can you expect of me? But Paul says this instead, Acts chapter 20. I only know that in every city, the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. However, I consider my life worth nothing to me if only I may finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me. And what is that task? The task of testifying to the gospel of God's grace. In essence, Paul says, I might get tired, I might get beaten, but I will not be deterred by the power of God. I'm going to keep moving forward and help the next person that God puts in front of me, and after them, the next person that God puts in front of me, and I'm going to keep on helping me because, Paul says, I know the gospel of God's grace. And that is news that I cannot possibly keep to myself. I, a murderer, have been forgiven. I have had my sins washed away, my self-righteous, thinking that I have to gain the respect by how I keep the laws of Pharisee. All that garbage has been washed off of me by the blood of Jesus. I can't keep that good news to myself, Paul says. And if it means prison, if it means difficulty, if it means sometimes I'm tired from the journey, I'm going to keep moving forward. So that all or nothing myth is just a myth, and it's answered really by this. It's not about my relaxation either. Now, I'm not saying we never need rest. We're going to be talking about that in another message in this series. We certainly do. But in the the end of things, you're going to find that if you serve the neighbor that God is placing in front of you, you may get tired sometimes. But you can also be comforted to know that it's not all or nothing. It's who God is putting in front of you right now, right here. An idea is powerful. The Bible says so. 
And if you want to see that brought home in a very vivid way, go catch the movie. It's a good movie. It's an exciting movie. These ideas are powerful. These myths that Satan wants to place inside our minds, all revolving around this single idea that it's all about me and how I choose my calling in life, how I treat my neighbor. It starts with me thinking about me first. God says that's a lie. And every version of this is a lie. It's not about you earning respect. It's not about your reputation. It's not about worrying and fear and people will walk all over me. It's not about you protecting your rights. And it's not all or nothing. It's not about your relaxation. It's about you simply serving the person that your father places in front of you right here, right now. Really. It's not about us, and it's not. Then what it is about is, it's about this amazing God that loved us, graced us, forgave us, and won eternal life by sacrificing his son for us. It's about living the adventure of serving your neighbor. And your vocation destination is a place where God is going to continually put neighbors in front of you and where he says to you, to whom can you be a neighbor? Take a look at your next steps, living the adventure. Very powerful, since ideas are powerful, to just reflect and identify the myths that are holding you back from your calling in life, especially your calling to love your neighbor as you love yourself. What are those myths? Is it one of these that we talked about today? Is it some other myth? Get them out on the table and understand what they are. Secondly, growth groups are so important in our church. And and one of the really amazing ways to find a neighbor that you can be a neighbor to is to select someone in your growth group that you go, man, I'd like to get into their story. Aren't you amazed by when you go to a movie that you, you, your heart and mind just kind of immediately leaps into the story of the characters on the film? You can do the same with someone that you know, maybe in a growth group, and go, I'm going to leap into their story. I'm going to find out what their life is about. I'm going to get to know them, and I'm going to find out how can I be a neighbor to them. Why don't you take a pen, either now or in the next few minutes during this next song, and actually write down the name of a neighbor, maybe a growth group person or someone else, if you're not in a growth group, that you can become a neighbor to and dive into their story. And thirdly, meditate on and memorize Luke 10, 36, and 37. And that says simply this, Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. And Jesus told him, go and do likewise. Let's pray. Father in heaven, you are a gracious God. That you sent your son. And one of the the impacts... of of the story of the good news of your son is that he has done everything perfectly in our place. Lord, when I think about being tired from my journey and how many times I've maybe not stepped up to love my neighbor, I love reading that story of your son Jesus at the well. 
And thinking this thought, Lord, not only did Jesus set me a good example there, but he was also there my perfect substitute. All the times I've failed, all the times when I have not been a neighbor, they're all forgiven. And all the times when Jesus perfectly was a neighbor, despite his exhaustion and tiredness, that now belongs to me by grace. And it belongs to all of us. Lord, thank you so much for the righteousness that you give us. Thank you so much for the forgiveness that you've won for us at the cross. And now, Lord, empower us, as you told that lawyer, to go and do likewise and be a neighbor to the people that you place in front of us. And pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Crosswalk Church Podcast. For more information, visit us at crosswalkphoenix.com.